Hello and welcome to Glitch Cube. We are a gaming podcast and each week we take a deeper look into the art of video games. As always, I'm Christian. And I'm Chris. And thank you for joining us again as we travel uh, once again, once again. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) As we travel around the world, our next stop, we are still in South America, but we are heading over to Brazil. Last time we chatted a little bit about Brazil, saying how big their gaming industry is, and we felt it only right for them to have their own episode because there is a lot to this, not just the games that they make, which are amazing but the history behind the games and the choices that are being made by game designers themselves. It's all very fascinating stuff, and we are really excited to dive into this stuff or dive into Brazil with you guys. Now, when people think about Brazil, they think a lot about, you know, like carnival festivals, like crazy, elaborate costumes, beautiful, like colors, all that fun stuff. But there is a slightly darker side to Brazil. Brazil is, I mean, it's, it's impoverished, right? It's, it's being, it's being monitored a lot for the imports that come in and out of Brazil. There's, there's a lot of struggles that the people go through and maybe that's why a lot of their games and the events that they hold are so big and elaborate is to have that sense of escapism. And it can be seen in their games. Their games are gorgeous. They're so fun. They go into these amazing imaginary worlds and just explore and just thrive, right? And Mm -hmm. one of the big things that we notice in games in Brazil is their, uh, their expertise behind pixel art. And that is a very common thread and something that we will definitely be chatting about a little bit later in the episode as well. But before we start really diving into the games and the history behind the games, I want to kind of set the stage a little bit for Brazil, right? Brazil is very interesting as far as how advanced it is with some of the cultural practices. Like, for instance, uh, sex changes in Brazil are free, which is a insane concept right especially for us here in america where we are now ch- uh, like in talks of actually the some of the bills have been passed already of it being a felony or potential life sentence to assist uh was it uh transgender teens right oh yeah the parents and stuff yeah so like it's kind of crazy to think about that juxtaposition there or even the fact that brazil was the first army to actually allow women to enroll. So they were very progressive as far as that goes. And another crazy fun fact that I learned about Brazil while doing research for this is that prisoners are allowed to lower their sentence by four days for every single book they read in jail. Like, that's Hmm. pretty cool. Like, we do have here where you can actually get, like, a college degree in jail, but there's nothing saying that it's going to lower your sentence, right? But this kind of really comes all together whenever you think about the education system in Brazil. A lot of people uh, don't have a high school education, so they are pushing for that in some way, right? And the best way to do that for them is in a controlled environment. Well, you're in prison and you want to get out a little earlier. Well, here you go. Here's an option. If you, you know, lean more towards the education side of things, then you could potentially benefit society better when you come out. So that's kind of like the whole goal that they're trying to go for. Like, while they are very progressive, they are 
less progressive in a lot of other ways. For instance, with game imports and not just the games, but the systems, what businesses are doing or what companies are doing business with Brazil and all that. And it's it's been since the beginning, since Atari. It's it's a pretty crazy history. But I think that you probably have a better understanding of some of the embargoes and all that fun stuff that they Brazil had to go through uh, in order to get games just to like live in Brazil to be <laughs> playable, right? To make it part of their culture. So why don't you give us a little rundown on that? So kind of to start things off, uh, there, I think, I don't know, I couldn't find if this law is still in effect, but uh, for most of all of the life of gaming with consoles and everything, there was a law in place that consoles had to be made in the country. Uh, they couldn't import it because they they had to be built there. So it would drive costs. I of, think that is still in place. It still is. Yeah, because I think the PS3 was licensed out to some companies in order to make it. So like the boards were sent, but then something mm. else was made. I I think, or they're finding workarounds. That's a good point because I did see like. Because, like, if you wanted to buy a PlayStation 4 brand new out there with the warranty, it's, like, over $1,000 in U.S. money. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I'm going to go back in time and talk about the beginnings, but just to put in perspective of the cost is that, you know, even now, people will buy an open box to get it pretty much for the price that we pay here. Um, But... Going back to the days where I think Atari was kind of the first beginning of the home console generation in Brazil, which, I mean, you can say the same here, but I feel until Sega got its claws into Brazil, a lot of the PC gaming for the era, like the ZX Spectrum and MSX were really the only things until Atari came in. And even then, it kind of ended in the late 80s, right? When Nintendo was around. And the big problem with Nintendo is that there wasn't really a representative out there. Mm-hmm. So they they had a presence with their games, right? But you didn't really see actual NESs around, um, because of the cost and because of Nintendo not really working with the country, people have to make clone systems. And pretty much a clone system is the same thing as a normal system, but with some differences, right? It's going to run a little differently. Sometimes it can run better. Sometimes it can run worse, you know, because it is different hardware. And that kind of, especially for Nintendo, you saw like almost a clone system for everything, I think up until maybe the GameCube. Um, But like the NES, Super NES, I think, I couldn't find really anything on the N64, which that's kind of interesting. I couldn't find that, but... I would imagine they probably did the same thing. I think so. Like uh, for the NES, it was the Phantom System, and for the... Super Nintendo is the Dynacom and Dynavision 2, which, you know, it's 
because they were able to clone it, it was also a little bit easier for people to make games for it because since you have the hardware, you can obviously create the games for it. So we were starting to see like these clone systems either able to play ROMs or people able to make like custom games for it, which you couldn't really do on an actual Super Nintendo, right? Because I had the little like security thing in it. But something that I found interesting is that the Master System, which was the Sega version of the NES, mm-hmm. right? Their 8-bit platform. Didn't really do well out here in the States. Did well almost everywhere outside of the States, surprisingly. Like, Europe was pretty successful. But in Brazil, it was probably the most successful to the point where they were still making Master System 3s in 2008. And you have to think, the first time the Master System came out, I think, was 86 or 87. Yeah, didn't it get like discontinued in like the 90s? Very early. Like, in the United States, yeah. I think it was discontinued as soon as the Genesis came out. Yeah, so like 92-ish or something like that, right? I think. Yeah, and it's interesting because in Brazil, so uh, this company called Tectoy handled uh, all of Sega's stuff. They originally started out as a company, you know, toys. But they quickly realized that, hey, like, we want to bring games over because we see it's a uh, business that isn't really being taken advantage of in the country, and they did, and they were very successful with it. And they actually created some really interesting things with the Master System itself, right? So they made different versions. They had the handy, they had, which was uh, a console and chip. Like, they did later on in the the life of it especially like in the 2000s they started making clone systems of the master system which include like over 100 games on one chip kind Mm -hmm. of like what we see now with like the nes mini or even you know the at games arcades where it's like oh here's 100 games on a little like console that you can play at any time right I found that really fascinating, actually. Sorry to cut you off, but like a lot of the early cartridges that they did, especially with like Atari and Nintendo and all that, whenever they Mm -hmm. were making them, it was a lot of cartridges that had multiple games on them. And actually, one of the cool cartridges that I saw was one that had switches on it. And depending on the common, it had two switches, A, B, C, D, right? And there's Mm -hmm. four different games. And depending on how you had the switches, like, press so if you had like a and d flicked then it would play game number three or whatever it was right so they had some really ingenious designs as far as that went but it was a lot of combo cartridges right it's very Mm -hmm. interesting to see that and i'm sure it has to do a lot with the fact that there wasn't a lot of money uh that the consumers could spend on these things so they had to find ways to give them more for their dollar right and like really make it seem like a valid purchase at that time or this might be the only cartridge that someone could buy for years so allowing them to have multiple games on one cartridge just to get games out there you know is is a very fascinating idea yeah i mean honestly after the those consoles lived their life they did this for the mega drive which is genesis in the u.s and 
something I found really fascinating about this is that obviously they were still kind of making games for these consoles in the 2000s, right? Long after they're long dead and gone, right? In the 2000s for Sega, we had the Dreamcast. And to think that they were still making Master System and Genesis games, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think the two that I found that were most interesting were included on one of those consoles with, you know, over 100 games. There was a Guitar Hero that worked on the Genesis. Really? Which, yeah. And it, it's fascinating because I couldn't, th- there's no like control, like guitar controller to it though. Mm. And then Need for Speed, which actually looks kind of good from like the little footage that I've seen. There's not much on it because obviously not many existed. But you have to think this uh, this came out when the PS2 was around. So basically you're playing like a PS2 game on a Genesis. Wow. And it's, I mean, it's not 3D. I mean, it kind of is, but it's kind of not. You know, it's that kind of like highly pixel, like it's very interesting to look at Mm. and i mean they even did stuff for street fighter 2 was on the master system which you know act in everywhere else it came out on like the genesis or super nintendo so it's really fascinating how they made games work on platforms that were easy to get a hold of and it's honestly kind of like it's a bummer that these consoles are so expensive over there because it's like you you want everyone to be able to play and enjoy these like you know just how everyone else does you know and but them making these like easier to get for people it it's cool you know like normally like you can't just go into a best buy out there and buy a console because it's so expensive so they have like gray markets where you can buy clone systems Mm -hmm. you know and play games a much cheaper route yeah, especially if it's open box. Right. And, I mean, it seems like it still is like that to this day, which is interesting. Honestly, it's it's really fascinating too that Nintendo didn't make its presence in there until maybe like the early two thousands, and then they pulled out and didn't actually come back until twenty twenty. That's crazy. Yeah. So now they're there, but it's like. Honestly, when you think about it, they weren't really there in my from what I could tell where they had a strong presence until 2020. But I thought that they also pulled the switch out from Brazil as well. Like they are no longer importing it themselves. It all is coming through like aftermarket imports now because the sales in Brazil are so low for the switch, like in box and all that. But on the gray mm-hmm. market, obviously, it's probably much higher, but they don't have a way of tracking those numbers. And one of the big things, too, with, like, this gray market stuff is it's super interesting. And you'll see consoles out of box. And that's a very common thing for Brazil, like, on how to purchase your consoles. You basically, if you're going to get a console and you want it to be affordable, you will buy it out of box. And the reason for that is because the, the shippers are able to put much more consoles onto a sh- into a shipping container whenever they don't have all the extra box and protection and all that stuff taking up space. So they're trying to make the price worthwhile as far as the resellers go by taking everything out of the box so they can actually have more inventory because otherwise it would just cost way too much for them to bring over the amount of inventory that they need to uh, uh, 
you know, just to fulfill the sales that they have, which is kind of crazy to think about. So the that's why like these numbers that the companies are looking at are so skewed because most of the sales are going through the gray markets and the aftermarket sales, right? The mm-hmm. the out of box sales. So they have no real way of actually gauging that, right? So like it makes the numbers in different countries like someone for who's selling in Brazil might go to America, buy everything up, right? And then take everything out of the box and then ship it over to Brazil. But the thing is, is that those purchases are now like gear or in America, right? So those numbers are now inflated, whereas Brazil's numbers are deflated. And that's why Nintendo ended up pulling out imports to Brazil. You know, so it's kind of like a weird system going on where it's almost it almost feels like they're kind of hindering their own selves. But because the prices are so high, they had to do this workaround. So it's it's very it's a tough, touchy subject there. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I just always found it interesting. I had a, a friend back in the, oh God, like the MSN era, like AIM. Um, <laughs> Showing our age. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Back when uh, goofing around on message boards was the thing before like Twitter and Reddit. Uh, I used to talk to someone out there quite a bit. And it was always interesting because I would talk about games and it's like we never really talked about the same games because like their experience was almost totally different than mine. And it was fascinating. You know, I, I found so many games I never really thought I'd heard about because I didn't really grow up with Sega. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting how it's like a, I don't want to say a parallel world because I feel like everything I did research on about this all said that, you know, mm-hmm. but it. It really does feel like that. And I mean, nowadays with modern gaming, it's a little different, especially with indie titles, because it's easier to access, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to access from a phone or from a computer might actually be a little bit cheaper than a console. Well, not just cheaper for the consumer, but cheaper for the developers as well. Yep. So one of the things that really fascinates me about this is, okay, so you bring up the idea that, you know, we were able to play games like Gran Turismo or Need for Speed on Sega, right? Like, And, like, that's such an amazing concept to me, the fact that they're able to push that console so far to potentially play, you know, a couple generations later games on those consoles. They're working with what they have. And I think that really speaks to the type of games that are actually coming out in Brazil right now. Like their indie market is huge. It's massive. Their pixel art stuff is beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's because they're using the tools that are available to them. A lot of pixel art creators or generators are free, right? And a lot of these indie studios are using the free resources that are available to them right now because they don't have the money to dump into dev kits and things like that. Dev kits are super expensive and it's not even a fruitful um, endeavor for them to go through because the people of Brazil don't have those consoles, the newest consoles. So why would they spend the money on those dev kits, right? Like they're looking for a global uh, hit before they even branch out into potentially going to the newer generation consoles. And then even then, a lot of that stuff, the porting over is being done somewhere else, right? Like whenever they pair up with a console itself. So it, it is really interesting that like 
and fascinating and i love it because you know the creativity of brazil itself is just amazing to me that they're able to accomplish such gorgeous things using the assets that are available to them whenever we have you know games that are running on the best 3d engines out here they're supposed to be the most beautiful games ever in existence and then they completely crash and burn when they come out thinking you know Mm -hmm. like cyberpunk right that game is gorgeous, but it has so many bugs and issues because they're trying to chase that that dragon almost, right? They're trying to push everything because, you know, with games being developed out here, we have access to every tool possible. So then a lot of games end up going into that spiral of, oh, this new software just came out. Let's port everything over to that. And then bugs and issues come from it. But then when you look at Brazil, they know what tools they have. They know how to use them well and excellently, actually, like they're masters at their craft with the tools that they currently have. And they're able to just focus in on making a great product. And it really does shine in the games that come out of Brazil. Like it's it's insane to see some of this pixel art because it's gorgeous. It really is gorgeous. And the games themselves are very interesting and exciting to play. But they're not because they're not being bogged down by the newest software, the newest tech that's coming out. Right. They're making games for themselves. Like it feels it almost feels like every single game that comes out as far is a passion project. And you really feel the passion of the designers shining through, uh, shining through their games. It's amazing to see. It's crazy. Like, I don't know. I was just kind of actually looking over a list of like over time like how kind of games have evolved over there and it's fascinating you know and thinking about some of these games that have come out recently i i mean honestly i didn't know half of these came from there and it's just the the visuals i'm like wow like it's i don't know it's beautiful like well like for instance right so when we talk about like Think about this game, right? This game was not developed in Brazil per se, but the artwork came from Brazil, which is pretty amazing. So Celeste, Celeste is an amazing title that is globally loved, right? And one Mm -hmm. of the big things that people talk about when they look at Celeste is the artwork, how much like it just, it's a great experience, not just to play it, but to look at it as well. And come to find out that the artwork was actually done by a company in Brazil. Like, that's crazy to think Hmm. about, right? So, so, I mean, Celeste was made by a North American company, Matt Makes Games, but the actual artwork was actually made by a Brazilian group called Miniboss, right? And it's, Hmm. it's just crazy to think that, like, like we, like the game, I guess like the game uh, industry itself knows that Brazil is experts at this pixel art. Like they know their craft and they know they're good at it. So they're utilizing Brazil as a way to get amazing looking titles. And that's just one indie game that's, while not in Brazil, specifically developed, Brazil had a huge hand in making this game successful. Because if it didn't have that art, I don't think Celeste would have been as, I guess, I guess noticed or watched or looked at, right, as a amazing title, despite having an, a really great story behind it, too. Yeah, I think, like, for me, the graphics really make, like, 
a good 50% of that game for me. Like I, I love the story and like the platforming music. I mean, honestly, everything about it was great, but the artwork really tied it together more than I felt any other kind of platformer has done really like it. The graphics made me pulled me in initially and then made me want to keep playing the game, which Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of times with pixel graphics, you don't, I don't really get that too often. No, it's very rare, I would say. But whenever you look at the list of games that come out from Brazil, it's it's amazing to see how many of those pixel graphics like really pull you in, right? It's the first thing you mm-hmm. look at and you're like, holy crap, this game looks amazing. But it's because they're masters at their craft. They really know how to handle it. And uh, one title that I think is a really great example of them being masters of the craft as far as pixel art goes is... Um, dandara trials of fear right Mm. like that Mm -hmm. game is gorgeous to look at and it has a really great story the the gameplay mechanics are really really clean and simple but it was designed to be a mobile experience because they're trying to like that's the easiest thing to actually design for is mobile games so once again they're taking their tools that they have that they know that they can make an excellent product out of and just focusing purely on that and one thing, too, that's really cool about Dendara, which I thought was really fascinating, I didn't know about it, but Dendara is a real person in Brazil. Uh, she was a freedom fighter, basically. Um, she fought to help uh, free slaves in Brazil, and they actually decided to make a game revolving around her. Now, obviously, the game doesn't go into the exploits that she went through and all that, but they're just using her as a main character, get, like in a much more like fantastical light. And that kind of goes into something I want to talk about, too, where in previous episodes, we talked like especially in Mexico, where they focused a lot on culture in a lot of their games. Right. And when we were doing the uh, the research on South America as well, it started noticing a difference between the way that Mexico was handling games and the way that South America and even Brazil are handling their games, where Mm -hmm. their culture isn't really a driving force behind it. Right. And a lot of the games that are coming out, these amazing indie titles are much more fantastical in nature. Right. It's a full escapism. Once again, remember, we mentioned it as well with like Carnival and all that stuff, like the festivals that they throw their whole like background or premise or idea of life is escapism because they don't want to, you know, relive what they're doing right now. Right. Like they want to travel to unknown worlds and all that. And that's where these indie titles are getting a lot of their inspiration from and why they are so vast and out there. Right. And just kind of much more interesting, I would say, and less less culture focused. Right. Yeah. And one of the big driving forces behind that is the fact that whenever a game does have strong cultural ties to Brazil itself, the sales in Brazil specifically are very, very low. And a lot of these indie developers, their primary market is Brazil because it's hard for them to get out in the world, right? To get global recognition. Uh, So it like really, I think one of the game designers said that like whenever we make a game, that has Brazil as the focus, about 10% of the sales are actually from Brazil. The other 90 are from the rest of the world. So how crazy is that to think that 
right? Like the rest of the world is fascinated and intrigued by Brazilian culture, but the Brazilians themselves are like, well, I don't want, I don't care about that, <laughs> right? Like they're, I mean, they're showing it with their money. Like they might, you know, in interviews and stuff, they might say that they do care about their culture and it's fairly important to them. But based on the sales, it's not as important as they might or make it seem, right? If that makes Mm -hmm. sense. So that's why a lot of the games that are coming out of here have less cultural focus than other countries like Mexico, for instance. Yeah, I kind of noticed that because when we were talking about this episode, um, I was trying to look for, you know, modern games that have like a background, like how we have with Mexico. And it was almost impossible. I was surprised because, I mean, for future episodes of this where we go around the world, a couple of the countries I've looked at, I've been able to find, you know, games with cultural roots and backgrounds Mm -hmm. and display history. But Brazil was like the only one I really couldn't find anything about. And I'm like, hmm. But hearing what you say, it, it makes total sense. Why? You know, and I mean, for the most part, I can see why any country would really feel that way. You know, it's you've grown up with your culture all your life. You do want to, and when you want to play a game, you want to escape. I mean, most people want to escape when they play games, right. you know, but yeah, like some of the titles I found, it's like definitely out there, right? Fantastical. And like, there was one I played uh, not too long ago called Virgo versus the Zodiac, which is a turn-based RPG. It's, I'm trying to think of the style of turn-based. I think it's more so just your typical turn-based. It's not really like anything like crazy different mechanics, but it's very pretty. Uh, It's kind of got the soft pixel, kind of like that pastel goth kind of look to Mm -hmm. it, like purple and teal. Like it's very like, it's a very pretty game. And uh, I enjoyed my little time with it that I had played when I did. Um, And, you know, looking at some of their other titles too um another game that really stuck out to me when i first played it was momodora Mm. reverie under the moonlight and it's kind of like a metroidvania you know it's definitely a platforming action and i it's interesting because i never knew either of these games came from there you know it's just honestly most time when i play a game i don't really i never really thought about the background Mm -hmm. and nowadays i do because it makes games even more interesting to me and i really enjoyed this game a lot it i didn't get to beat it because usually i never get to finish my games but i loved it and this is coming from someone who plays a lot of metroidvanias um i thought this game was really good and i feel like it didn't get as much praise as it should have at least like how a lot of of these styles of games always get hyped up. It was one of those that kind of just was there. And I think like in certain communities it got big, but it's not like Hollow Knight, like, you know, or it's everyone knows it. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but um, that one also had the funding to, you know, actually get into dev kits early so they can get early exposure into different things. Whereas in Brazilian market, they don't have those dev kits available, right? So it's a little harder to break mm-hmm. out. So yeah, it makes sense. And there's two more I want to talk about before we get kind of into our big uh, developer. 
to me, I think these two games probably are the most recent ones that I know kind of reached a mainstream success. Uh, I know Horizon Chase Turbo was a very popular indie racing game, and I've played it. I really liked it. I grew up with, you know, Top Gear and Outrun, and this game is literally that, just 3D, you know, the typical 3D indie look, and it's it's freaking awesome. For a racing game, if you're into those kind of arcade ones, this game is good. You know, I really, really like this one a lot. And then this is a game I just picked up. It really reminds me of, like, Cruising USA. <laughs> yes yeah. yes it does oh god i love that yeah. game too um now this is a title i just picked up but i've had multiple friends praise it um saying it's like a game that i truly love a lot and hold dear to my heart but the game is called kaze and the wild masks mm-hmm. it's a another platforming game and everyone i've spoke to about this uh, says it's like Donkey Kong Country, which is one of my favorite games. And from what I've seen and from watching other friends play it, it literally captures that same feeling mm-hmm. down to the music, which is crazy. And the gra- like the, the Pixar looks really good in this game. And it's it's good seeing how positively it was received. And I'm actually really excited to play this because it comes in in a few days and i need a distraction from elden ring <laughs> it it just looks amazing so i'm excited to play that one i'll let everyone know how it is too nice. yeah all right so i think it's time for us to dive into the big developer of today so behold studios this is a this is probably one of the most successful studios to come out of brazil and they make some amazing amazing indie titles uh, if you've ever played games like Knights of Pen and Paper or Chroma Squad, like those games are so much fun. There's so much humor behind them, but you can just really feel the nostalgia ties to them, right? And it's just they're gorgeous to look at, super entertaining to play. Uh, like for like Knights of Pen and Paper was amazing to me. It really like it, when I found it, I was just kind of having my I guess I would call it like my Renaissance period with Dungeons and Dragons. And I was really falling in love with that concept again. And then I see Knights of Pen and Paper, where it's just taking Dungeons and Dragons to a whole nother level. It's bringing it digitally. It's almost, it's like bringing that experience to the mobile devices, which now you can get on other consoles as well, but mobile game first. And it was so much fun, right? Like this game's great. Like even the way that the characters are presented to you where everyone is sitting at a table in the front of in the foreground of the screen itself, you're the only person's face that you really see is the DM, right? So like you really get like almost like a POV shot of you playing Dungeons and Dragons with your friends sitting at the table again, right? Like it's just it's really, really nice touch there. And then once again, the humor behind all of it is really great. doesn't take itself too seriously. But that seems to be a very common thing with Behold Studios themselves. Like, they're very comical. They're very, like, let's not take ourselves too seriously. And they are, they're blowing up. Like, and this is a really great, I guess, like, a, like almost like Cinderella story, right? For a, a game design studio, right? So Behold Studios is becoming really, really huge. And now they're starting to branch out into other avenues 
where they have uh, the the new game that just came out, Out of Space, which is a departure from their typical look, right? So this one's actually full Mm -hmm. 3D, but it's a very well-made game and very fun to play as well. But it's just showing that like with their success, they are branching out just like any other game studio would do, especially here in the States, right? Whereas maybe if this Behold was in the States, their first game would have looked more like Out of Space opposed to maybe the Knights and Pen and Papers and the Chroma Squads. But they were using the tools that they had available to them at that time to create their passion projects, right? And even in their newest installment of the Pen and Paper series, the Galaxies of Pen and Paper, there is some like 3D assets available there too during spacecraft battles. So it's basically think D&D mixed with Star Trek, like just ultimate experience there, right? And it's just, it's really, really cool to see like this game company progress and actually see like where where they came from and where they're going. And it's really, really cool. Oh yeah. I I love Knights of Pen and Paper. I remember playing it on my phone first and then playing it on Steam later once the Deluxe Year edition came out. And I I loved the game. You know, as someone who I like D and D, but I ain't got time for that, you know, <laughs> like, but it's always something like to enjoy to listen to or, you know, to, you know, jump in for a few sessions and then jump out, you know, stuff like that. This game was just like so much fun mm-hmm. to me. And like you said, it didn't take it too seriously. And I loved the little cameos of other games that it would get thrown in there. And it was, it was a lot of fun, you know, and Galaxy of Pen and Paper, I only started a little bit of, but I really liked it too. I think I was actually kind of enjoying that one a little bit more just because I like space mm-hmm. a lot. And I think there was a sequel to Knights of Pen and Paper. Wasn't yeah, it? there's Knights or of Pen and Paper 2 as well. Yeah, I remember playing a little bit of that. And then, I don't know, I think because I played so much of the first, I was a little burnt out by it. Then. Was It was but, basically the first one, just more polished, right? a little yeah. bit extra thrown in so you can tell that they had a good success on their hands and they wanted to continue that success but i think probably the one that really got me to fall in love with behold studios while i did really enjoy knights of pen and paper and it was a great introduction was chroma squad chroma squad oh, is yeah. fantastic it's a little tactical game um but it's it's so funny to play this game because it is a power rangers rip Right. Like they are not holding back (laughs) at all (laughs) with how much of a parody this is of Power Rangers, where you even are playing as actors on a set. Right. And it's just so interesting to see this stuff. And like the costumes are hilarious. Like in the early stages, you literally have like a bucket on your head that you can tell that like, oh, they didn't have the budget for regular costumes. So they just made what what they had, which I love because it really takes you back to some of like the early Power Rangers stuff where it's like, okay, that costume looks janky, right? And it's just, it's Mm -hmm. super, super fun to see. And just the writing is brilliant. The character designs are fantastic. The battle system is really, really cool. Like they even have like joint battle systems similar to like your chrono triggers, right? If you have uh, characters within a certain squares of each other, then they perform, you know, uh, joint attacks and stuff like that. If you have the whole team together, then you can do a big attack. Like there's there's a lot of really fun things with this with this title. 
And uh, like I said, Behold Studios is a fantastic little group that they they just know how to make a really entertaining product without being too, I guess, serious is the best way to put it, right? Yeah, I I loved Chroma Squad a lot. Uh, I think, like you said, it was kind of the game that stood out the most out of anything I played from them. Just because I also really love tactical RPGs like mm-hmm. that. And it was cool seeing, you know, the differences in the costumes and the settings and everything as your, you know, your company, you know, got more money. And it was, I don't know, I, I, I freaking love that. Like it, it's just, it captured what I really wanted from a tactical game at the perfect time. Mm-hmm. And to me, like when I think about indie strategy RPGs, like in the tactics vein, I think it's definitely up there, like, in the top of my list. I mean, there are a lot of good strategy RPGs that are indie, but this one just, it had enough to be different, and it did it well, and it was just fun. You know, it wasn't drawn out. It wasn't like, oh, here's 20 different classes, and you get overwhelmed. Like, no, this is like, you're here you're a power ranger and you're going to kick ass, you know? And I think to me, that's, that stands out more than spending an hour trying to figure out what team I'm going to put out and what classes should I min max? Like it, it was, it was a perfect little bite size snack and I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, another thing too, that's great about this title is in, in the game, you actually get to change like one thing it's called studio options, right? So like you start building mm-hmm. up your base, which is your studio itself. And you can actually change everything from like the squad name, the robot, the mecha name, how you call the mecha, even your the, sh- the finishing move shout, right? So you can type in whatever you want, which is just adding to the humor and adding to the fact that like this is meant to be played, enjoyed, and just have fun with it, right? It's not meant to be a very serious tactical RPG, which most tactical games are very serious in nature. Like, look at your Final Fantasy Tactics. Like, I mean, even Triangle Strategy now. Like, it is very serious concepts going on. And, like, they're not going to let you basically scream, you know, like, it's punching time, right? Whenever something big is going to happen. But that's something you could do in Chroma Squad just to add to the humor. So you can add your own your own personal sense of humor into this title as well on top of the already clever writing that's involved in this title. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on this little excursion into Brazil as we travel around the world through video games. And we are excited to bring you the next installments, probably in a couple of weeks as well. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And who knows where we are going to end up next. But yeah, once again, thank you all for listening and we will catch you next week with our next exciting episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.